Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Ariana Chavez on the show. Ariana is the Executive Director of Arte Americas. Born and raised in Fresno, Ariana attributes her passion for art to formative years spent at Arte. She's returning with a decade of experience in nonprofit arts organizations, including the M.H.D. Young Memorial Museum in San Francisco, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and Artist Endowed Foundations in New York. Thus far, Ariana's career has been devoted to creating meaningful experiences and entry points to the arts with and for diverse communities. Ariana is an alumna of the National Association of Latino Arts and Cultures Advocacy and Leadership Programs. She earned a BA in Art History and Arts Management at the University of San Francisco and a Master's in Art History from Syracuse University in Florence, Italy, where she studied 16th century Mexican art in Italian collections. This is a wide-ranging conversation focused around art. Please enjoy it, and Baker will take us there. Fresno's best. Ariana, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh, I really like going to Central Fish. It's a place that has a lot of memories for me, and I tend to feel a little guilty when I eat out, but I never feel guilty about spending money on on good produce at a farmer's market or going to a place that's been in Fresno for a long, long time. That makes sense. What do you like to get there? I like that you can go and you can just buy Inari. I also, I mean, I used to go when I was in high school, we would go and just get like the balls of rice, but you know, I like to mix it up. Sometimes I'll have like the, the old classics, fish and chips, tonkatsu, but, or the chicken katsu, but they have poke now too, which is really great. Wonderful. I love chicken katsu and I, you know, I often don't get it enough. I feel like, and just for how much I love it, you know, just that <laughs> sweet sauce with the crispy exterior that, yeah, it's wonderful. I, I want to talk yeah. Uh, a little bit about kind of your journey. And I want to start with arts education, because I think this is a big thing that uh, is talked about, you know, kind of as, you know, myself working in public education, but also thinking about where arts education is headed. So I guess it's a two-part question. Uh, Can you describe your arts education? And then secondarily, if you Mm -hmm. could go back and add one thing to it and take one thing away from it, what would those be and why? (laughs) So in terms of my own arts education, I I definitely had a lot of early exposure to the arts in part because I grew up here at Arte Americas. And so seeing a lot of artists coming from different parts of Latin America, mostly Mexico when I was growing up, like that was exposure to artists and art as a concept was um, more than the average person. Um, When I think about arts education, I think about my opportunities to make art, and I was always really encouraged to make art. I think that some of my early my early art teachers, though, maybe didn't didn't know to know how to motivate a child who has who has a tendency toward perfectionism, right? And so, if you tell a kid when they're growing up, like, "Oh, it's almost great, but you forgot this or that." It can be a little tricky. So when I think about what I wish I had, I wish that there would have been a few more like open-ended opportunities for making art, a few more invitations 
students to just kind of explore and experiment with materials. We had that in some kind of like informal settings, but I think when you're in an art class, there isn't always that that space to explore materials because we have a tendency to be so product oriented. Yeah. Um, I was reading a news story this week about um, the University of West Virginia. Um, they're in the news because they're cutting a, a number of like world language programs in those kind of humanities departments. What does the world lose if we lose art history programs? Oh, gosh. If we lose art history programs, I would say a majority of the population does not have access to and to art history and to an arts history education. So if the world were to lose art history programs, I mean, I have my master's in art history. I'm trained in that that way of thinking. But I also know that it doesn't mean a lot to large swaths of the population. If we lose art history programs, though, what we lose are these opportunities and these spaces to think critically about the context and the connections between kind of the visual world and and the dates and details of what happened in the step-by-step. And so I think what we'll really lose is we'll lose really important context for who we are and who we've always been as human beings. Next question is about kind of another domain of art that's important for you. What is the hardest part about learning to dance folklorico and what does it teach you about movement? Yeah, I, it's funny when you asked about my arts education, I thought about folklorico and I'm really grateful that that was a part of my arts education. I, everybody struggles with something different. Uh, within folklorico, I love footwork, and I've seen a lot of people really struggle over certain certain zapateados. And for me, like that is it's supernatural. I get really, yeah, it, it's something that comes very naturally to me. I think the hardest part about folklorico is and kind of stepping into that space and learning about it are some of the expectations that exist within the folklorico community about authenticity. <laughs> and kind of some pressures to do it right or wrong. There are certainly a set of rules associated with folklorico and there are ways to there are ways to do certain things right and wrong, but it's a lot more complicated than we sometimes get the opportunity to communicate or express. Hmm. So you've worked in the art world in big cities like New York, but also mid-level cities like Fresno. Aside from the obvious element <laughs> yeah. of, of money, how do your conversations differ when you talk about arts or visual arts in these two respective places? Oh, I think in New York, there's a little bit more of an expectation that art will be... Well, in New York, more people are experiencing and engaging with arts and culture in a formal way on a regular basis. Here in Fresno, we are constantly engaging with art and culture, but in informal ways. And so there isn't really, what I've noticed is that oftentimes when we jump into a conversation about art and culture here in Fresno, there's can be some hesitation sometimes, or maybe this idea that like, oh, well, I'm not an expert on that, so I can't speak on that. In New York, it's like, a part of the day-to-day conversation. And so more and people, more people are more inclined to, to participate in some of those conversations. But I just moved home in February and um, I honestly have never, prior to this year, have not lived in Fresno as an adult. So ask me in a few months. Fabulous. 
All right. We're going to jump into some arts questions now. Uh, do you think Mexican-American muralists or Mexican muralists have been overemphasized in the history of Latin American art? <laughs> no, I don't think that they've been overemphasized, but I think that they've been the f- in a lot of conversations, they're the only ones who are discussed when we have conversations about Mexican or Latin American art. And I think that's the problem. It's not that they're being discussed. It's that other people aren't and other art forms aren't. I had, when I think about my own art history education and formal conversations, I will never forget that my class focused on Latin American art in my first survey course ended 30 minutes early and we only talked about Frida and Diego. And to get access to art history in Latin American art history, I had to declare a Spanish minor and take those classes. I'll never forget one of my professors saying that the three best known Mexican muralists, Los Grandes, were the worst things to ever happen to Mexico. And everyone else just kind of accepted that, you know, the pre- the professor's talking. And I got really mad at him. And it, we ended up having this really great conversation and kind of teasing out what he meant. And I think, I mean, he's not wrong, right? They get They get focused, they are focused on in a way that leaves people thinking that Mexican art is only muralists but there's a lot more. Yeah, I had a conversation about this topic with Dr. Jenny Sorkin, who's an art historian at UC Santa Barbara, because she just produced a a volume on the history of art in California and focusing on that. And it's kind of one of those unavoidable things where you need to talk about it, but you also need to talk about people like the group of women, Las Mujeres Muralistas, and like Mm -hmm. their art form. And, you know, there's a whole world of muralists as well. Uh, So what, so I, I guess my next question then is, are street art, street artists like Saner or Lelo, are they the new kind of muralists of our generation? Hmm. I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of muralists and a lot of really talented muralists. My my own expertise is not specific to muralism. Um, I studied 16th century Mexican art, and so when I think about Mexican art, I I do think about. I mean, yeah, there's an incredible history of painting on walls, but there's also incredible history of people making making art using hummingbird feathers and people making making art in a million different ways. And so I don't think that muralism or focus discussing muralism is a problem. I just would love to have more conversations about more more nuanced and more diverse art forms. Okay. Let's talk about the role of Catholicism in uh, Latin American art for a moment. Do you see that kind of as kind of a vestige of colonialism that gets in the way of expression? Or do you see that kind of through this kind of lens of syncretism where it's being created, being used to create something new? Yeah, I think that the Catholic impact on art within Latin America is, it's something that, that is really, really fascinating to me. I see it as, I mean, colonialism got in the way of a lot of things and Catholicism was a method of colonizing hearts and minds. And I say that as a as a person who identifies as culturally Catholic, right? This connection to these traditions is something that also connects me to, to thousands of people across Latin America. And it's not it's something that I'm conscious of and critical of, but 
also a fact. And I think that through my own research, one of the things that I've focused on is the way that art was incorporated as a method of acculturation and utilized by Catholic missionaries to to serve their own purposes and to communicate completely different things over in Europe. So thinking about Catholicism as an important part of many Latino cultures, but one part. There's the pushback, there's acceptance of it, and then there's subversion in between. And obviously there's the element of the indigenous in art. There's been a lot of great indigenous art. You know, I I kind of focus more on writing and literature. And I think about like Natalie Diaz, for example, and there's a lot of work there. How does that intersect with Latin American art, the, the role of the indigenous? I mean, the indigenous people exist and have always existed. And I think that within the art, the way that art and culture is presented, oftentimes indigenous communities are have been positioned as separate from art. Like, oh yeah, what they're making is craft. That's not art. Or son artesanos. They're not, um, they're artisans. They're not artists. And I think that we are in a position now to correct that and to to really think critically about the way that stories have been told. Indigenous communities have always had art as a part of their culture. And kind of related to that question, this is something that I think about quite a bit, which is uh, language. Um, language loss is one of the kind of most important but under-discussed problems that we have in culture. Uh, not only in Mexico, but across Latin America. Um, when you think about art and language, uh, how will Latin Americans be affected uh, by the loss of these indigenous languages to art, but also culture and society? Thinking of Nahuatl, I'm thinking of uh, a lot of the different languages that are kind of, you know, I mean, there's fewer and fewer speakers of them today. Yeah, definitely. I mean, language is a part of an, a really crucial part of culture. There are so many words that are specific to individual languages. And I think that part of the work that we do here at Arte Americas is about narrative change. And so moving away from this idea of, you know, Latinidad is a monolith, that's a lie we've been told, right? And something that has been something that has been positioned very strategically. I think that I'm really grateful for the people who are working to counter language loss and to be proactive in creating resources and opportunities for young people to be celebrated for their multilingualism. I mean, the more languages, the better. A big issue, I think, especially with indigenous languages, is that there's a reluctance to even identify them as languages. I've had conversations with people where they say, like, oh, well, that's a dialect. And it's, well, even that subcategorization is something that was done very deliberately to disempower people who are speaking another language. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk for a minute about memory. So given kind of the history of violence and colonialism, memory is often an important and deeply meaningful feature of Latin American art. I'm thinking probably my favorite is Doris Salcedo. I love her art so much and it's so powerful and kind of reminds me of some of the art that was produced by some of uh, the artists that survived the Holocaust, but also Mm -hmm. artwork after the AIDS crisis in San Francisco, where he had kind of floating structures of syringes that represented Mm -hmm. the ghosts of his friends who had disappeared in the 80s. 
So if you could kind of maybe extrapolate for a second about the role that memory plays in Latin American art. Yeah, I think that, well, I also really do like Dora Salcedo's work and was really lucky to see her retrospective at the Guggenheim a few years ago. Something that I think prior to to that experience, I had always thought of her as you know, the person with the with the stack of chairs in between buildings. But I think that when we hmm, memory and nostalgia is something that I think we get to explore within the arts in a unique way. And it's something that I think most communities, if given the opportunity, you know, we all have a lot of memories and a lot of us are like if you ask someone to tell a story, oftentimes they will be reflecting on memories, reflecting on loss. They'll be nostalgic for loved ones. And it's something that I think comes up a lot within within Latino art, but I don't really know why. Like I don't want I hesitate to say that it's specific to Latino art, even when I think about like myself and memory. I mean, you asked earlier about my favorite place to eat in Fresno. And I like Central Fish because my grandpa used to go buy his lottery tickets there. And it because I went there when I was a teenager. And, you know, the memory is is compelling and I think a driving force for a lot of us. It's an important part of our own culture and identity. And so these opportunities to reflect back are are something that we celebrate in our work at Arte Americas. But I'm not sure that if given the opportunity, it would be so specific to Latino art. Yeah, makes sense. All right. Last question on this uh, kind of topic. When you look at how Latin American art has evolved in the United States, mm-hmm. in what ways has American culture kind of influenced Latinx art in the U.S.? And I'm, I'm kind of broaching this as a broader question about assimilation and cultural loss. Uh, do mm-hmm. you see these, uh, think about this in terms of the process of blending and fusion, or do you think this as a pro- as a, a process of uh, losing certain aspects of culture? Hmm. I think that whenever whenever blending and fusion occurs, there will be some element of loss. And I think it's really important to, I mean, so many of us have worked so hard to and continue to work so hard to push back against like these melting pot narratives and to really to really focus on the diversity that exists and to be specific about who we're talking about when we're talking about certain groups of people Right now at Arte Americas, we have an exhibition that is entirely focused on on work by Chicano artists. And so Chicanismo is something that is very specific to the experience of living here within the United States. And it is very much about, it is a product of these violent experiences of assimilation and is in some ways in some ways, a reaction to these terrible things that were experienced um, within our communities. It's also an assertion of our own dignity and of important, um, important, important part of who we are here in the United States. And so thinking about the way that artists are responding, reacting, and demanding that our that our country do better and kind of calling the community to take action. I think it's really it's a terrible thing that we've been treated in such ways that require us to react in such ways, but it's also a really 
powerful thing and a really important history to focus on that is just true. And so when I think about kind of these ideas of fusion and change, I mean, cultures always change and there is an element of loss inherent to that. But I also think that, you know, the changes are also a reflection of our truth and our experiences. Okay. Our next section is called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you, uh, kind of rapid fire. You tell me whether you think they're over or underrated and why. Feel okay. free to pass on any of these. So the first one is the Palacio de Bellas Artes, over or underrated? Appropriately rated. Appropriately rated. is as mm-hmm. beautiful as it seems. It's gorgeous. And there's incredible art, terrific exhibitions to be seen there. No yeah. complaints from me. So if you go to Mexico City, it should be part of your uh, list for uh, places to visit? Only if you've already gone to the Anthropology Museum. Okay. What's what's great about the Anthropology Museum? The Ina is, you will see the most incredible, incredible art of Mexico and the most incredible visual evidence of life within the Americas pre-contact and prior to the European invasion there. Okay. Uh, next one, the book Love in the Time of Cholera, over or underrated? Appropriately rated. I okay. Yeah, I like it. It's a good book. Okay, great. Next one, the weird tower thing at the De Young Museum. <laughs> I've... I love it. I used to work in that. That's the education education tower. And it will be even better once it finally turns green and melds into those eucalyptus trees that are, make up its backdrop. Yes. I. The color is interesting. <laughs> I would, yeah, when I lived in San Francisco, it was kind of like a, let's go like on a date, let's go walk in the park and walk to the tower and kind of look at the city, you know, and, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a, an interesting form and structure. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's beautiful, but I'm excited that it will be a part of the... How much the longer? How much longer eventually. do we need to wait? Not an expert on patina. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Next one, the movie Coco. Overrated, but I will still cry every time I watch it. Okay. Why is it overrated? I think that, again, it is an, it, it's an example of something terrific, and we need more of it. Right. Not necessarily of Coco specifically, but we need more stories that focus on um, Latino narratives. I hate it because it does this thing of mashing up every single reference to the other muertos and it confuses a lot of people. So hate it for that reason, but it will still make me cry and I will happy cry to it every time. Okay, this is one I ask most people to come on the show because it's a Fresno staple. Me and Ed's pizza, over or underrated? Me and Ed's pizza is the best. I mean, it's me and Ed's pizza is what a pizza party tasted like growing up. So it's I get it when people from outside of Fresno, I get it when my friends from New York taste it and say it's not pizza, but it is what a pizza party tastes like to me. And it's what I want when I want pizza. Yeah. I mean, we all get to define what pizza is. They have pizza in Italy. They have pizza in New York. You go to Naples, you're going to get a certain kind of pizza. We all need to be ecumenical in terms of our pizza. I (laughs) couldn't agree more. Uh, Mexican food on the East Coast. You have to know where to find it. Okay. 
Is it, is it good? I mean, I've, I've heard delicious. Yeah. So I had a friend recently move back to LA from DC and he has eaten, I think Mexican food every single day since he's been back and he's been back for a year because he just said, I just couldn't find what I can find here out there. You won't find what you can find here. And it's because a majority of the people who are, who are making good Mexican food are from Puebla in New York. And there's not a huge population of folks from Puebla here in the Central Valley. So you will find completely different food and only in very particular neighborhoods. I lived in the Sunset Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. And in the time that I lived there, my part of Fifth Avenue was renamed Cinco de Mayo because there are that many poblanos there. Mm. So there's definitely good food to be had, but it's not California Mexican food. How was the Chinese food in Sunset Park? I know that's kind of an extension of Chinatown. Yeah, it's really good. Sunset Park is split pretty pretty much by the park. Fifth Avenue is all Latino. And then Eighth Avenue is the Chinatown. And the food is incredible. Some of the best dim sum places in the country are there. Okay, next one. Orozco's Prometheus, over underrated. <laughs> I'm going to say underrated because I don't think a lot of people know about it. Yeah. Why is it underrated? Well, underrated to me means that not enough people are talking about it. And I would love for more people to be talking about about Orozco. Like, yes, please annoy me by how many by your conversations about Mexican artists. No, go ahead. Uh, Bring it on. (laughs) Next one is the margarita, the most overrated cocktail. I think that margaritas are delicious. Please don't please don't waste your time with like pre-mixed mixes. You can have incredible margaritas and it's a classic. Okay. Next one. Flour tortillas. Delicious. Okay. Yeah. So I have I read a long article by someone from the more southern part of Mexico saying that flour is, you know, another vestige of colonialism. We need to move away mm-hmm. from that. Would you agree or disagree with that take? I agree that flour tortillas are a vestige of colonialism, and I do not think that we need to move away from it. I think that there are there's it's a reflection of this incredible diversity and these like wild experiences that people have had within different regions of of Mexico and and Latin America. I think if you're in in certain parts of of Mexico and you know, by extension, certain parts of the Southwest, a flour tortilla is, I mean, forget bread and butter, it's a flour tortilla. So it's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just different. And so I think it's inappropriate to tell people like, oh, that's not Mexican food, or that's not, that's not good. Like, yes to a, to a flour tortilla and yes to a corn tortilla. They're different and they're both wonderful. Okay. Next one, the Barbie movie. Have you seen it? Um, I have seen it. And it was funny. It was, yeah, it was fun. I think it's, I have no strong feelings about Bar- about the Barbie movie. I was not allowed to play with Barbies when I was young because it would reinforce an unrealistic self-image and all of those things. Yeah. So I, I don't have any strong feelings about it. It was just, just a fever dream. Okay. I agree. I agree with that uh, description. Just a few more on this topic. The next one is tattoo art as an art form. It's an art form. I'm one of very few people in my 30s that doesn't have any tattoos. So not totally for me, but it's an art form. 
Should it be taken more seriously as, as like, you know, kind of an art form in that capacity, similar to visual arts or because it's on people's bodies, it's kind of treated differently? Yeah, no, I think that, I mean, tattoo art is tied up with all of these ideas and criminalization of, of people who wear tattoos. And so I think there's, there's a, like any art form, there's, there's a history attached to it. Unlike most art forms, hmm, maybe it's a, it's a particularly polarizing art form. I don't feel like I need to see it in like major museums, but I would be curious to hear what an exhibition of tattoo art would look like. Like, yeah. You're obviously not going to exhibit the people, so how would you show the work? I don't know. I'm I'm curious. Yeah, maybe you it's photography of the of of tattoos. Okay, just a few the more. Photo exhibit, um, the dancer and choreographer Amalia Hernandez. <laughs> she is appropriately rated. She um, deserves her place within history. I'm always excited uh, when I see people move away from Amalia's choreography, but holding on to some of that initial um, intention of representing various regions of Mexico um, and incorporating elements of um, incorporating elements of multiple dance forms and multiple art forms into one. Yeah, she deserves her place in history. The music of Bad Bunny fun not mad at it yeah cool with me okay last one the book hurricane season by fernando melchor i haven't read that book okay i would highly recommend it uh next section i want to talk a little bit about funding and sustaining art um Mm -hmm. is the commodification of art a net positive or negative for the average artist not including the dead ones I think modification. I I don't. Wow. I mean, this is definitely an art market question. And I think really committing my career to nonprofit arts left me kind of separate from a lot of the conversation, those conversations for a long time. When I think about the commodification of art, I think about the commodification of elements of our visual culture across time and history. I think that it is, I don't think it's a net positive for dead artists. I mean, they died and never got to, so many artists never got their flowers during their lifetime. Yeah. I don't know. Is there, what's your, what's your goal with the question? Uh, My goal with the question is that we have an increasing number of hedge fund billionaires Mm -hmm. valuing art at exorbitant prices and costs and values Mm -hmm. and art becoming like an asset that's traded. And I think that I, my take would be, I think it's a net negative for art Mm -hmm. for it to become kind of enter these kind of wheels of capitalism where it's just treated like something like an asset. And I don't know what that looks, how that affects, you know, the average artists, let's say working in Fresno and thinking about what art should be and what the goal is. Yeah. I think, well, then from that, you know, moving from that, then I think that we, we don't want artists producing art with the, that final dollar amount 
as the the driving force, right? Of course, artists need to sustain themselves. Um, it's expensive to be alive, but we want people to have the opportunity to make the art and tell the stories through their art that are important to them and to their own communities. So I think that it's yeah, it's certainly not it's certainly not something that I that I prioritize or or celebrate on a regular basis. So let's say that that cordless phone uh, calls you in an hour and it's Joe Biden. And he says that he wants you to run uh, the National Endowment for the Arts. And you have suddenly a lot of funding to allocate across the United States to support art programs. Uh, do you think the allocation of that fund should be uh, more centralized and top down? Or do you think local control of arts funding will better benefit communities across the country? I've never thought about this. <laughs> so it's a thank you for the question. I think that moving away from the Biden example and thinking locally about where we're at with our the rollout of Measure P funds, I think that it's incredibly important for folks locally, members of the arts community to be to have control over over arts dollars. I think city by city, the distribution of funds and support for the arts varies drastically. I don't see a way to centralize that or to make it, yeah, to make it uniform in any way. But I do understand that here we need people who are boots on the ground, making art, promoting access to art, to have the resources to do the work that they understand because the work does look different it looks very different in different communities. And that's because different communities have different needs. Yeah. And I, I think there's some challenges with the centralization. I mean, I think about the California Arts Council, for example, and when mm -hmm. people submit applications for projects, exhibitions, you know, sometimes uh, certain metropolitan areas that are not Fresno can be uh, emphasized or allocated large portions of the funds at the expense of other places, even though there's you know, large populations in these other places just distributed, you know, much further. And so that that's kind of also behind the question, too. And just thinking about, you know, that's what tends to happen is those centers of gravity pull funds that way. But at the same time, sometimes you have uh, communities that will, <laughs> you know, use arts funding for things that are kind of tangentially art. And totally. so then that local control can be dangerous. So it seems like it's a real tightrope to walk to figure out what the best path forward is with arts funding. So much of this work is a tightrope walk. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next question. Etsy, is it for crafters, artists, and is there a substantive difference there? I think Etsy is for makers, I guess. I've never purchased anything from Etsy, and so I, it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about, but I think that we spend a lot of time talking about like who's an artist, what should be designated as art, and you know, if you're, you're making something and you... The, and you choose to identify it as art, then that's up to you, really. Yeah, I agree with that. What do events like Art Hop do well and what can they do better? Mm -hmm. I think that Art Hop has done an incredible job of demonstrating, Art Hop really demonstrates a desire for our community to participate in the arts. And what I see, what I saw when I saw Art Hop growing up in Fresno was an opportunity, an invitation really to enter certain art spaces that sometimes out of necessity have funny hours or um, maybe 
don't always have that open invitation. So I saw it as an invitation and now I see it as, as a, as a request, maybe even a demand from the community to have more access and more entry points produced by places like Arte Americas. So I'm, I'm seeing it as a, as a good challenge. I think that art has kind of fallen to the, to the side within art hop in a lot of spaces. Um, I would encourage everyone to think about how they can incorporate opportunities for people to make art um, in art hop and so inviting people into processes um, it's tricky right because people are selling their things people want to make money need to make money but um, as much as possible I want to prioritize the process in making art and inviting folks to participate in that as much as possible yeah, I think the truth is that bars are open every single day. Art Hop is, you know, <laughs> less than that. And so, yeah. you know, the, the art being at the forefront, I mean, I I don't know how you, you know, it's an emergent phenomenon, right? Like you, you know, it's something that's the people are in control of. And so there's a certain, you know, we, we all can want to be the czar sometimes to kind of reconfigure organizations, movements. But, you know, the truth is it's just they have a life of their own. Mm-hmm. But I think the best thing we can do and this is just my personal take is just encourage people, you know, for every, every beer you buy, think about buying a piece of art, you know, like, and if your ratio is like 10 beers to one art, one piece of art that I think, I think you just need to go to a bar, which is fine. Go to a bar, like have a great yeah. time, but let's, let's, let's remember why this exists. Definitely. And I, it is interesting to see Art Hop receive so much attention nationally as well. I've had friends send me send me articles in the last couple of weeks and even podcasts discussing Art Hop. And it's something that folks from outside of Fresno are seeing as something that we're doing right and doing really well. And it is exciting that so many people want to participate. I think it's just, yeah thinking about. It's a unique challenge for me as the director of an arts organization to think about how we keep art front and center within Art Hub. Okay. And on that note, let's talk about some of the upcoming exhibitions. Before we get to the Jose Montoya exhibition, I, I just want to ask you, when you're thinking about putting together an exhibition, and we just I just did a podcast with the Nevada Museum of Art that was focused on women artists uh, from California. Mm-hmm. And I was talking with a curator about how she thinks about putting on exhibitions. And she had a lot of interesting takes. And so I was curious about your uh, approach to thinking about process. The process of putting together an exhibition specifically? Yep. Yeah. So I have actually not put together an exhibition yet here at Arte Americas. The exhibition that we have on view was planned before I was hired. Um, And so I cannot take any credit for it. Um, I... There are elements of it that are absolutely dreamy, and I feel really lucky that it's here. When I think about planning an exhibition and kind of the future of exhibitions here at Arte Americas, I want to make sure that we are, with each one, offering an opportunity for people to really deepen their understanding of what Latina art is, and so really inviting people to to focus on particular stories, particular histories. I think storytelling is an incredibly important part of uh, the development of an exhibition. And I also think that it's really important to offer folks an opportunity to engage, offer folks an opportunity to engage in multiple ways. So thinking about all of the different 
types of learners that will come into an exhibition and creating opportunities, of course, for visual folks, but also inviting people a little bit into the process so that ultimately we're doing our our job of celebrating and nurturing Latina arts by inviting folks into the process and helping them feel like they can participate, they can go home and do something similar, not because they need to be professional artists, but because they see value in art and everyday life. Okay. And then if you're thinking about, you know, kind of 10,000 foot perspective, what what is your vision for what Arte should be in Fresno as, as you know, as an organization that's kind of a linchpin in terms of culture and art? Mm-hmm. I think that Arte Americas already is the largest Latina cultural arts center in the Central Valley. And so we're already the biggest. We, by default, in some ways that might make us, some folks might say that makes us the best. I think that I want us to, I want Arte Americas to really be known for its programming and to really be known as a space where folks have an opportunity to participate in in this process of making and understanding arts and cultures. So I guess, yeah, I want, I want it to be known as a place uh, that is inviting and um, welcoming as a space for folks to participate in arts and culture. Can you share now a little bit about the Jose Montoya exhibit and what, and, and really the cool stuff. And I had a previous podcast with a poet and we talked a little bit about the intersection of poetry and art and visual arts. I mean, can you talk about some of what people can expect? Yeah. So Jose Montoya's Resonant Valley is a beautiful exhibition that includes uh, over 700 original works on paper. So that's drawings, uh, prints. There are some paintings on cardboard as well. And it's really, it's really worth it to come and take your time. I really do notice different faces, different details in the drawings on a daily basis. And I'm here every single day. So it's, it's a beautiful opportunity to kind of reflect on the process that the process and the work ethic that Jose Montoya had at the center of his practice. And so thinking about One of the objectives of this exhibition is to welcome the spirit of Jose Montoya back to the Central Valley. He graduated from Fowler High School and reflected a lot on the 99 within his poetry. And there are all kinds of different drawings that are representative um, that represent different parts of the valley landscape. But it's really, I think, a beautiful opportunity for so many of us to see our own family histories reflected. And it's an important reminder um, of what our own role is within our communities. There are lots of drawings of pachucos and uh, pachucas within this exhibition. And I don't know if I'll All your listeners will know what pachucos and pachucas are known for, but pachucos specifically are known for wearing zoot suits. And there's this incredible drawing that Jose Montoya did where he he drew pachuco over the top of a photograph of Emiliano Zapata. And Roski Doski from Hella Fresno painted that up on a wall within this exhibition. And so, and that's... As I mentioned, this exhibition was designed and um, developed before I was hired, so I can't take credit for it at all, but I'm really glad that that's there because for me, that is Jose Montoya telling us 
um, reminding us very clearly that we have a choice when we go out into the world that we can um, we can choose to show up and show off for our own communities. And that is a revolutionary act in and of itself. So Thanks. it's a beautiful invitation. Last question is always the same. What are two or three books you'd recommend to listeners? <laughs> My, <laughs> there's a book that I come back to over and over and over again. And within my own research, I it, I would almost always cite it. It's called Puritan Conquistadores by Jorge Canizares Esguerra. And so that's, that's one that I'd like to recommend. I have also been reading a lot of children's literature lately. And so the book that I read most recently is uh, Super Cilantro Girl by Juan Felipe Herrera. And we're getting ready to, to welcome him for a couple of events this fall. He'll be debuting one of his new books called Future Kids. So I, yeah, I think children's books are not just for kids. So I'd like underrated. to offer that. Yeah, totally underrated. Yeah. I'd like to offer that as an option to listeners of all ages. Cool. Where can people find out more about Arte and what are some of the dates on those upcoming events? Yeah, so Arte Americas is in the process of redesigning our website. Our website is arteamericas.org. And on social media, we're just at Arte Americas, so A-R-T-E Americas. And right now, the best place to find out about to stay current with events and updates is probably social media. And some of the events that we have coming up are our bilingual story time which takes place on the third Saturday of every month. We also will be hosting two fresh food workshops in collaboration with Food Mood Kitchen and Black Socalo. I'm really excited about those. We'll be offering an opportunity for folks to learn how to approach a CSA box. And so encouraging people to incorporate fresh local produce into their day-to-day eating habits. And then on September 1st, Arte Americas will be hosting a back-to-school celebration for Valley educators, where we're inviting people to learn more about how to use our current exhibition and Arte Americas generally as a resource in the classroom. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm also open to suggestions from, from people at this point in terms of ideas that community members have for how we use this space in the future. We know that we'll be making changes very soon. And so this is an exciting time where I get to listen to a lot of different ideas and learn what's possible here in the building. Back to events. September 7th will be our Gonzafos poetry series with our featured reader, Lee Herrick. And on that day, we'll also be celebrating two special guests. One is Malakias Montoya and the other is Dolores Huerta. So we're very excited that she'll be visiting us. And then on October 7th, we'll be hosting a poetry and wine celebration where Juan Felipe Herrera will be guiding us through a history of Chicano poetry from the 1920s to today. We've got a lot coming up. That gala all gala sounds gala. wonderful. <laughs> gala Gala is also October 28th. So stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, my calendar's now full. So <laughs> I appreciate you talking with me. It's such a wonderful organization, such an important part of the city. And we're so excited to have you at the helm. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Yeah.
this is, you know, you left me with a lot of really great things to think about. So thanks for your questions. Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.